0: Good morning and welcome to the Truth in Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwell Church of Christ. Truth in Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love.
1: We live in a world that is marred by religious confusion. The confusion is a result of hundreds of different religious organizations and denominational bodies wearing various names and practicing different doctrines what we want to do in our study today is simply examine what the bible has to say about the church in romans chapter 4 verse 3 paul raised a question that is really pertinent to our study he asked what does the scripture say when it's all said and done it really doesn't matter what mankind might say about the church but what is most important is what the Bible has to say. If we look to the Bible, that will help to clear away the confusion, and we can see what Scripture says about the church. And I study today as we consider this topic. What does the Bible say about the church? The first thing that I would call your attention to has to do with the origination of the church. To understand something about the origin of the church, it would be good for us to look to the book of Matthew in chapter 16. Jesus, of course, is in Caesarea Philippi, the northern part of Palestine. On this occasion, he asked the disciples, Who do men say that I the son of man am? The response was, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked a very powerful question, a pointed question. But whom do you say that I am? And you remember Simon Peter spoke up and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then responded to that statement by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus in this context, identifying and telling the world that he would build the church. There are a couple of points of interest in verse 18. Number one, to understand that when Jesus promised to build the church, but he used the singular. He said, I will build my church, not churches, but my church. And then secondly, to underscore the fact that not only did Jesus promise to build his church, but to note it's possessive in nature. You see, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the one who built it. Not only did he build it, But the Bible tells us that he bought it. He bought it with his own blood. In Acts chapter 20 at verse 28, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church from Ephesus. They are in Miletus. And so in verse 28, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What we're saying is the church is the blood bought body of Jesus Christ. It was born and bred in the mind of God. There are some that have the idea today that the church was nothing more than an afterthought on God's part. But that's not correct. No, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 that the church exists in accordance with God's eternal will. God planned for the church. There are those in the world today that see the church as a non-entity. I think it's important for us to understand that the church and Christ go hand in hand in the redemptive story. You can't have the one without the other. You remember, for example, in Revelation chapter 13 at verse 8, Jesus is identified as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus came to die for the sins of the human family. He would redeem the human family with his shed blood. But in shedding that blood, the Bible tells us that he bought the church. We are talking about, again, the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. It would be helpful for us to go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God began unveiling his redemptive plan. And you remember, God called on a man by the name of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham identified as the friend of God. The Bible tells us that God said to that great patriarch in days gone by that through his seed line, all nations of the earth would be blessed. The seed, that is the promised seed spoken of by Moses in Genesis 3.15, would come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which later became the 12 tribes of Israel the Lord Jesus Christ would descend through the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have David as king. And David, you remember, was told by Nathan the prophet that God would establish a kingdom, a kingdom that would stand forever or never be destroyed. The kingdom that the Lord spoke of in that context, we know it as the church Oftentimes in scripture, the church and kingdom are used interchangeably. Now, not every time we read about the term kingdom in scripture does it relate to the church, but on many occasions. And then you'll remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow, envisioning both Jew and Gentile residing in this divine body or institution called the church. In Ephesians 2 verse 16, Paul would say to the saints in Ephesus that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body under God through the cross. God's design was to bring both Jews and Gentiles together in one divine body, one divine institution known as the church or kingdom of God. Daniel, that great prophet of God, Daniel had the opportunity to serve in the court of the Babylonians. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, had a dream, didn't understand the content of the dream. And so Daniel was called upon to interpret that dream for him. And he did so. And the Bible tells us that in that dream, there were four world empires pictured. The first having to do with Babylon, over which Nebuchadnezzar was head. The Babylonian Empire would later give way to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians would then fall to the Grecian Empire, which in turn would yield to the Roman Empire. Now it's in this context that Daniel spoke of a stone cut without hands. I think the allusion there is to the church or kingdom of God. In Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel said, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And then here's what he said, It shall stand forever. Daniel projecting in time, the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. As Isaiah said in the long ago, it was to be an exalted institution. All nations would flow into it. We turn to the book of Matthew in chapter 3, and the Bible introduces us to the forerunner of the Christ, John the Baptist. And you remember when John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, preparing the hearts and minds to be receptive to the Christ. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that John talked about was the church. And then in Matthew chapter four at verse 17, the Lord Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry at about the age of 30, the Bible tells us that he heralded the very same message. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter nine at verse one, Jesus said to those who were present on that particular occasion, Verily I say unto you, there are some of you which stand here who shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. The idea that the church was an afterthought on God's part is simply not true, but rather it was born and bred in the mind of God before time began, The church and the Christ are inseparable. Jesus Christ is the one who built the church, he bought the church, and then thirdly, it belongs to him. The church does not belong to any one individual, but rather, since Jesus built it, bought it with his blood, it would only stand to reason that it belongs to him. You remember, for example, back in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage through that 10th and final plague. And we have here a record of the institution of the Passover. And God instructed the children of Israel with regard to the firstborn and how that their children could be saved. In chapter 13, God said to Moses in the long ago to sanctify to him the firstborn. Whatever opened the womb, he said, whether man or animal, and then he said, This it is mine. Now, in the Old Testament, there are types and shadows. The New Testament correlation to this, I believe, is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, at verse 23, where the writer said to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are registered in heaven, when the writer there spoke of the church of the firstborn. What he was simply saying is that the church belongs to the Lord. We are the church of the firstborn. God has designated us as his. We have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart from the world under God. That's what Paul would teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 2, writing to the saints in Colossae. You remember, He said in the long ago that they had been delivered out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a second thing that we ought to consider in our study. First, the origination of the church. But secondly, the authorization of the church. Now, there are those in the religious world today that espouse the idea that the authority rests within the church. And yet, Jesus said this in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We're talking about the authoritative word of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop, and you remember he was transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John, and the Bible tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared on the scene on that occasion. Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel, Elijah standing for the prophets of God in days gone by. It's on that occasion that we find God the Father speaking from heaven, And God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear ye him. Emphasis on hearing what his son has to say. That means that when it comes to matters of faith and practice, I need to be interested in what the Lord says. And not only interested, but I must be willing to subjugate my life to his. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The prerequisite to entering the kingdom is to do the will of the Father. Jesus asked the question, recorded by Luke in Luke 6, verse 46, Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In Revelation chapter 22, in about verse 14, John said, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. If we want to go to heaven and be with the Lord one day, we've got to be willing to follow his will. We've got to understand that what the Lord has to say is true. Now, with regard to how the Lord regulates the conduct of the church, You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul was writing to Timothy, his own son in the faith, and he said, but if I tarry long, I write these things so that you might know how to behave yourself or conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said that the things that he wrote, the purpose of his writing was so that. Christians in the first century might know how to behave or conduct themselves in God's church or in God's house. So what we're saying is God's word is authoritative. We're not bound to creeds and catechisms. We're not looking to manuals that have been penned by men, but rather our desire is to simply humbly accept what the Lord has to say. You know, churches can be wrong, but the Bible is always right. Let me illustrate it like this in terms of how the Lord regulates the church today. You remember in Hebrews chapter nine, the writer there said that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. If you wanted to ensure that your estate were to be distributed as you envisioned, what would you do? Well, we understand the importance of writing a will. Once our death occurs, that will is probated and then executed. Well, by the same token, when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, his will or new covenant was executed. Today, we are under what Paul called the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. It is identified as the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, verse 25. James also identifies it as the law of liberty in James chapter 2 in verse 12. Our goal is to submit again to the authoritative words of Jesus Christ. Paul taught in Colossians chapter 3 verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to do it by his authority. Now, you remember, we looked at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. When Paul raised the question, what does the scripture say? It's incumbent on us to make sure that we're trying or that we are following the teaching of Jesus. Paul would say to the church at Thessalonica in the long ago, prove all things or test all things. Hold fast what is good. That would infer that there are some things that are not good. So, what then is the standard by which we test or prove all things? Well, it's not what I think. It's not what the majority thinks. It's not what some denominational creed book has to say. But rather, the standard by which we test everything is God's holy word. Do you remember the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11? If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Our goal is to simply provide a thus saith the Lord, to things that pertain to faith and practice. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what Peter said in Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four. That means everything necessary for a godly life in Christ Jesus has been revealed. We today, We follow the New Testament, and by the way, the New Testament is what will judge us one day. You remember Paul in Romans chapter 2 at verse 2, said that we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Pontius Pilate asked the Lord, what is truth? Jesus answered that in John chapter 17, verse 17, when he said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. God's Word in its entirety is true, according to the psalmist in Psalm 119, and also to understand that the Word of God does not change. In Psalm one nineteen eighty nine, the psalmist of old said, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. We can look at what the Bible has to say about the church and understand that what God has said about the church and the conduct of the church does not change. There is a third important point for us to consider in our study. We've talked about the origination of the church, the authorization of the church, but then thirdly, the organization of the church. The Bible teaches us that from a universal vantage point, there is one head and one body. Well, who is the one head? Well, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. The who there is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in about verse 22, you find that the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head over his church. And then, The Bible teaches that there is one body. You remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul would write, There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, over all, and in you all. All right, here's a question. What is the body? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul would say, he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, listen to him, which is his body. The church is the body of Christ. And Paul said that Jesus is the head of the body. How many churches or bodies are authorized to exist according to scripture? Well, according to the apostle Paul, only one. Second question. How many heads are authorized in the New Testament? How many people or how many individuals are authorized to serve as head over the church or the body? Only one. Now I know that, and this is a historical reality, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus is the head of the church, but There is a man who occupies the papacy who functions as the head of the church on earth. Please listen very carefully. With all due respect, the Bible does not teach, does not authorize the papacy. You can read your New Testament from cover to cover, and you will never read where God has authorized a pope to sit upon uh, and reign Over the church. It's just not biblical. There is only one head and there is only one body. Now there are denominations that will acknowledge the one head, but they would say that there are many bodies. The Bible teaches that there is only one head and one body. Again, what was it Paul asked? What does the scripture say? What we're trying to do is identify what the Bible says. From a regional vantage point, I can read about the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 1, or the seven churches of Asia spoken of by John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And then from a local vantage point, the Bible speaks of the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Sardis, the church at Laodicea, and so on. Locally, congregations are overseen by men who meet the criterion set forth by scripture in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1-7. through They serve as elders or bishops, pastors. Those terms are synonymous. And by the way, when you look at the church as revealed in the Bible, you always read about a plurality of men who functioned in that capacity over one congregation. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13, we have we have a record of the criterion or the traits that are to be identified in men who serve as deacons or special servants. In second Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, we read about evangelist. Every person who has obeyed the gospel is spoken of as a member in the church we're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus every person who belongs to the body of Christ is a member of that divine body but those who serve as elders and deacons and evangelists they are special servants now there is a fourth thing that we need to cover in our lesson today it has to do with the salvation in the church if you look at acts chapter 2 we have a template for the establishment of the lord's church again jesus promised to build it he bought it with his blood it belongs to him in so saying that we look at acts chapter 2 and luke records for us the establishment of the lord's church we've got the right place the city of jerusalem according to isaiah chapter 2 acts chapter 2 the right time frame the days of the roman kings but note if you would in the presentation of the gospel of Christ, Peter preached the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He also emphasized his coronation, the fact that Jesus sits upon a spiritual throne, the throne of David. In verse 36, he said, Let All the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Bible tells us that The word they heard on that occasion convicted them. They were pricked or cut to the heart. They cried out and asked Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now listen very carefully to what Peter instructed those people in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day to do. And let me preface this by saying, I want you to see what he didn't say. He didn't say, everyone bow your heads, recite the sinner's prayer, and you'll be saved. No, here's what he said. Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. What was it we said that it means to do something in the name of? It means to do it by his authority. These men were being governed by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the Bible tells us that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Lord Jesus had told them to tarry in Jerusalem until endued with power from on high. When they obeyed the gospel, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that day. And the Bible says in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, what did they do? They believed in Jesus Christ as the son of God, repented of their sins, and then they were immersed in water so that they might enjoy forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark sixteen sixteen. Saul of Tarsus had been praying and fasting for three days. When Ananias approached him, he asked, and now why tarriest? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Why is it so critical to be a part of the church I read about in scripture? Because in Ephesians 5, verse 23, the Bible says that Jesus is the savior of the body. Only the saved are in the church, and the church is comprised of the saved. God bless. Hope to see you back next week. Until then, may the Lord bless you.
0: Thank you for listening today. We would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class, is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m please visit our website www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org.